Hello and welcome to Connect Points podcast and sermon archives. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please go online to our website at connectpointupc.com or follow us on our Facebook page. Thank you very much and I hope you enjoy this week's message. God bless. Amen. Praise the Lord, church. Amen. We're going to go to Psalm 119. Again, give honor to all of you for taking a weekend, Saturday morning, Friday night, coming out here. Uh, I, I tell people often how much I love my home church and how supportive. I don't think anybody could receive as much support from their home church as I've received, and I, and I truly am grateful, grateful for that. My family, of course, Pastor Cox, Brother Lear, all the, all the other leadership I'm so thankful, and uh, so thankful again for Brother Kilman to be with us. I love and appreciate him and his family so much. They mean the world to me, so I'm very thankful for his mentorship. We're going to go to Psalm 119, verse 89, and I thought, Brother Cox, I've probably opened with this text more than probably any other verse in the Bible, and I'm okay with that, because I, I love this verse, and it says, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Somebody say Settled. A scholar that I I love to read, he said, uh, the word is not forever unsettled, the word is forever settled, that we have a Bible today. Amen. So just off off of uh, the starting point here, maybe I could ask this question. Has anybody ever read uh, a a couple books maybe that, uh, that some people try to say, they're these lost books of the Bible, like the Gospel of Thomas? Or the Gospel of Judas. Has anybody ever heard of these books? Has anybody ever read some of these books out of curiosity? Okay, well, let me tell you just a little bit about some of these. So there's an infancy gospel. Uh, Now, these books are written after the New Testament, and we're going to break that down in just a little bit. But these books are written after John the Apostle died. He wrote the book of Revelation, and then some of these other books came out. And there's uh, what is called the infancy gospel of Thomas. And here's a, here's a young Jesus. He's, uh, he's in uh, his, his childhood years, and he's walking down the street, and, and he bumps into this kid about his age, and Jesus kind of looks at him. He gets really angry. And now I want to pause just for a second and say, this is not in the Bible, Okay? Everybody say, not in the Bible. The reason I'm emphasizing that is because one year I told this in one of my CCS classes, and for some reason the kid was like not paying attention at this point, and he went and told other teachers, did you know the story about Jesus? It's not in the Bible, my friend. So Jesus looks back, this kid bumps into him, and Jesus gets so mad, he strikes this kid dead. Okay? You can read it. And, and uh, the, the parents, obviously, are very upset. And they go to Joseph and Mary, and they're like, you got to do something about your boy here. He's striking people dead, all this stuff. And so Joseph comes in. He's like, now, Jesus, you know, you can't just go killing people. And Jesus, now, the, the parents of the dead kid, they're out somewhere trying to, you know, get their kid ready for burial, or they're in the street or whatever. And from across town, Jesus strikes them blind. And uh, Jesus just looks up. Now, Jesus is a jerk in this story. He looks up at his, his earthly father and says, oh, Joey, you know, you're, you're, just, you're just saying this because those other people are coming to you and you, know, you, you don't really mean it. And so uh, <laughs> Joseph grabs Jesus by the ear, pulls him out to the street, and there's the dead kid. They're trying to, you know, get him off the ground and all that. And there's all this, th- these arguments. And so finally, Jesus resurrects the boy and everything's okay because he, he brought the kid back to life. Did I mention the stories about Jesus? <clears throat> so again, it's not in the Bible. <clears throat> Another one, this is called the Gospel of Peter. And the Gospel of Peter, now in the Bible, in our four Gospels, we have uh, Jesus resurrecting from the tomb, right? But here's the thing. In those Gospels, we don't actually see Jesus coming out of the tomb, right? The women show up and the disciples, the two disciples show up and the tomb is empty. The angels tell them, why are you looking for Jesus here? He's risen as he said he did. But in, oh, thank goodness for the Gospel of Peter, because we actually get to see Jesus coming out of the tomb. So people show up and the the stone is rolled away. And these two angels, they, they're huge, okay? They're, they're real tall. They, they go, they slouch down, they get into the tomb, 
and they help Jesus out. Now, the angels are, their heads are very high, they're very tall, and Jesus' head is like up to the clouds. Now, there's a reason for that, is because the person that wrote the Gospel of Peter did not believe Jesus actually had an earthly body. But that's something we'll have to talk about later. So they come out, and then, Brother Crane, I don't really know what happened, how the cross got into the tomb, but guess what came out after the angels and Jesus? Well, the cross just, I don't know if it was hopping or floating or something, but it comes out, and, and then, uh, lo and behold, they start having a conversation. Not the angels and Jesus, Jesus and the cross. They start having a conversation. This is not in the Bible, okay? So this is post-New Testament. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll add just one little thing at the end of this. <clears throat> the Gospel of Thomas, the very last, what, what we could, could call saying or verse in the Gospel of Thomas, Simon Peter said to him, let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male... That's not like a mailman that, well, it's male as in a man. So that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who shall make herself male will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now if the music could please come. Okay, that's literally the last verse of that gospel. So here is my question for us today. Does the gospel of Thomas, that infancy gospel, the gospel of Peter, the gospel of Judas, all these different books, do these books carry the same weight as Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, First and Second Peter, Revelation? Are these books supposed to be in our Bibles? Okay, that's, that's the main question we're going to ask today. So here's my title is The Issue of Canon. The Issue of Canon. So let me, let me bring in a few more questions that all kind of point to my main idea today. What is in our Bibles? Today we talked about the con or excuse me, yesterday we talked about the content. We talked about how the Bible is validated through scripture and through history. So are there books missing in our Bibles? What if scholars now in first and second Corinthians, it sounds like Paul, he says, I've written other letters to you. So what if we find, Brother Joshua, what if we found third Corinthians? or 4th Corinthians. What if scholars find, this, find these lost epistles? Should we just insert them into our Bibles? Or what about 1st Enoch? Oh dear Lord, not Enoch. What about some of these other ones? Okay, our overall question for today is this. Can you trust your Bible? Which, we, that's what we asked yesterday too, but just from a little bit of a different angle. So can we trust our Bible? So I'm going to address this in two ways in two ways today. The first one is going to be if I am talking to another Christian. So if I'm talking to another, whether they are a apostolic or maybe a Lutheran, I'm going to approach this from the avenue of that they already have a respect for scripture. That's going to be the first point. And this is what I would say first of all to them. The canon is primarily a theological issue, not a historical issue. Primarily, we have to start from the avenue that this is a theological issue, which means this is an issue of God. For, for that, we have to answer, what is the nature of Scripture? What is the Bible? Well, the Bible tells us what the Bible is. It's revelation. Not the book of revelation, but revelation just means God has revealed something to us. He has revealed the unknown. It's God giving us something through inspiration. God has inspired scripture. He has given it. So here's maybe how we could condense this to say, God has given us the Bible. It was given to man through the anointing of the Holy Ghost. So let's look at two primary scriptures for this. The first one is going to be in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1 Verse 21, it says, For prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. Okay, this is not a human product. Meaning when Moses was writing Genesis, or Isaiah who wrote the whole book of Isaiah, he did not say, hmm, what am I going to write today? And they just started scribbling stuff down. Okay, but, by the way, what is prophecy? Prophecy is, is, is speaking God's words. 
It's not always predicting the future. It's, it's giving uh, what God has said. And so if it says that, for prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That means as they were preaching or as the prophets were writing their scripture, they were moved on by the Holy Ghost. The anointing of God came upon them. That's how we have scripture. Let's look at another one. 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, some of scripture was given. Oh, no, I miss, I'm sorry. Let me say this again. Most of, no, that's not right either. All of scripture, somebody say all. Brother Kim, when the Greek there for all means all, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. Pastor Carson Indy said, oh no, he read this one time. He said, oh no, we don't like that one. For correction and instruction in righteousness. So what does this mean? All scripture was given by God. All scripture, the canon was given by God. The canon of scripture is not something that was compiled by man. It was not collected by man. So there are things we're going to get to later, but there's this argument that says, well, the Catholic church made up the Bible. There's no evidence for that in history. So again, we'll break some of these things down. So here's a really big deal. The canon was received by mankind. Now, I have to ask a question. Is there a difference between Scripture and the canon? Because you'll notice something. I have not given you a definition of what the canon is yet. Because theologically, we would say no. So what am I trying to say? We have to look at what is the Bible. One scholar calls this the ontological definition of the canon, and I believe I have that in your notes there. Ontology just looks at what is something. What is the being of this thing? What is scripture? So Michael Kruger, and I have his website at the top of your notes there. Uh, I, again, the little warning there would be, I, I, believe, I uh, agree with much of what he says, a few things. Uh, maybe I would say differently, but I, I think he has a very good definition here. He says the ontological definition of the canon focuses on what the canon is of itself, namely the authoritative books that God gave his church. <clears throat> so the books of the Bible do not become canonical. They are canonical because they are books that God gave us. As soon as Moses wrote in the beginning, it was canon. Why? Because canon and scripture are the same thing. These are permanent books that God has given to his church that we have received. Humans did not concoct it. Now, this leads us to presuppositions. And I'm trying to go a little bit slow here because I want to build this idea. So what is a presupposition? A presupposition is an idea or a belief that you have before you even approach a topic. So a presupposition, we could say uh, maybe, that maybe a little bit more of a, a negative connotation to it would be a bias or an assumption. So what assumptions do you have before you approach a certain topic. This could be political. Maybe even before you hear the name of the opponent, when you hear what party they belong to, you already have assumptions about them. Or maybe, Brother Kermis, that sports team. You're from Wisconsin? Say no more. <laughs> Every, so here's, what, here's the deal when it comes to presuppositions or your worldview. Everybody has a worldview. Everybody has a presupposition. <clears throat> so where do we start? Where is your presupposition? Because if my presupposition, Brother Kilman, is that this is the word of God, it was given by God, that's my starting point. So that means everything in here is God's word. I've had people try to tell me, well, look at this mistranslation. Okay, let's look at it. So are there errors in the Bible? So is this God's word or is it not? Even before you show me the error, you have to tell me, do you believe in this or not? Then we can look at it and talk through it. 
Now, are there some challenges? Sure, and that's why God gave us a brain to dig and look and, and have Brother Cox conferences like this where we can study God's word. So everybody has a presupposition. So again, I want to point this out. This is a theological issue primarily. We look at what is scripture. So let's ask this. I'm asking a lot of questions. What books did God give? Okay, if God is powerful enough, Brother Brandon, to give us God's word, then God is powerful enough to keep it. Now, I say that word keep, we could use the word preserve. God has preserved his word. If God inspired it, then he has protected it. And Brother Kilman, you shared this uh, many times in classes when I was a student. Inspiration without preservation is useless or meaningless. Add whatever word you want there. If, God, if, if he can't keep his word, why did he give it to us in the first place? If what, okay, if God inspired Moses to write the book of Exodus, oh dear God, in Leviticus, who reads Leviticus? If God, if God gave us Leviticus, if we don't have that Leviticus today, why did he even give it in the first place? And so these are important. Again, it's a theological issue because it comes down to this concept. Is God trustworthy? Is God trustworthy? If God gave his word, but he can't keep it, what makes you think he'll keep your salvation? If God can't keep his word, what makes you think he'll redeem you? His promises of redemption or grace, what, make the, what makes us think he can keep part of scripture but not this other part over here? So it all comes down to God's trustworthiness. Amen. Forever, O oh Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. So let's take a look at a couple more scriptures. So... We're going to look at this issue of canon or scripture. How did Jesus view the Old Testament? Now, a lot of these things, I know we've covered these before, and I know uh, you all probably know this, but this is just to get us all on the same page. So by the time of Jesus, as he's preaching uh, around, around that year 30, so 2000, uh, just around 2,000 years ago, what did the people of his day think about the Old Testament. Well, the Old Testament canon was fully acknowledged by the time of Jesus. And so if we look at Matthew 23, verse 35, Jesus, this whole chapter is Jesus confronting the Pharisees. And this is what Jesus says. He says that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth. Now, Jesus is talking about how you Pharisees, you're, you're following in the footsteps of your ancestors. You've always persecuted the prophets and the people that God has sent. Stephen picks up this same idea in his, in his sermon in Acts 7. Uh, he says, from the blood of righteous Abel, everybody remember Abel, right? He's the first one to get murdered in scripture. Unto the blood of Zacharias, whom ye slew between the temple and the and the altar. So who's this Abel guy in Zechariah, Zacharias? Why does Jesus mention these two individuals? Well, Brother Laverne, it's because, well, when, when, did, when did Abel die? What book did he die in? Genesis. Well, we know that's the very beginning of our Bible. Well, here's the deal. In, in our English Bibles, we have our layout of the Old Testament a little bit different than how the Jews had their layout. So in our Bibles, the very last book in the Old Testament is Malachi. But in Jesus' time, the Jewish uh, method was to look at 2 Chronicles as the last book of their Old Testament. So who is Zacharias? He's the prophet that was murdered in the book of 2 Chronicles. So what we see from this is Jesus is saying, from the beginning of Scripture to the ending of our Scripture, the Old Testament that is, you guys have always persecuted the prophets from the beginning to the end. And so what, it is, uh, what the Scripture is showing us is that Jesus is showing that the whole of the Old Testament canon was finalized, accepted, believed, received by the Jews of his day. And here's something interesting. What do we, we never see this in the New Testament. We never see the Pharisees debating Jesus about the Old Testament as far as what is in it. 
Okay, because how, okay, does this phrase sound familiar? It is written. How many times did Jesus say that? Or ye have heard it said, or as Moses wrote, or as the prophet said. Jesus does that constantly. But you know what the Pharisees never said? That's not there. Or that's not in the Old Testament. Why? Because they fully agreed with what was in the Old Testament. So if we're truly going to be apostolic, Brother Kilman, you spoke on this at length, that if we're truly going to be apostolic, we better view the Bible as the apostles did too. We can't just say we're apostolic in doctrine. We have to be apostolic in everything. One, I would, I would argue, well, Brother Kilman has argued, uh, that to be apostolic in doctrine means we believe in all of Scripture. Well, let's keep going here. <clears throat> so how did Jesus view the Word of God? Matthew 24, verse 35, what does Jesus say? Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Somebody say words. My words. The words of Jesus shall not pass away. We're going to stay in Matthew here. Let's go to Matthew 4, 4. These are the temptations of Jesus when the devil is coming against Jesus and trying to get Jesus to fail so we would lose salvation forever. And the devil tempts Jesus and says, you know, you should, you should uh, make these stones bread if you're so powerful. Prove yourself. Do a miracle. Jesus responds and he answered and said, it is written. Now what's he about to do? He's about to quote the Old Testament. Now just on a side note, Jesus is quoting the book of Deuteronomy. And he's going to quote the book of Deuteronomy in all three of these temptations. Jesus loved that book. What does Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by some of the words. By most of the words. <clears throat> I'm sorry. By every word. Somebody say every word. Every. Sister Kimberly, every word Jesus said that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So we saw Jesus said, my words shall not pass away. He says here, every word that comes from God. Well, let's flip over to the right, just one chapter, and let's look at chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus again is, is preaching, and he says, think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. Well, what is it? What's he referring to? The Old Testament. He says, I'm not come to destroy the law, but I've come to fulfill it. Because, you know, as Paul said, the Old Testament is our schoolmaster. If you don't study the Old Testament, your image of Jesus will be incomplete. Or you won't know why the things that Jesus did was so significant. And so we have to make sure we're not ignoring the Old Testament. That's a little side note. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, Verily or truly I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, not one jot nor one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law until all be fulfilled. Now, let's, let's slow down. And, and again, uh, we probably are familiar with this, but what is a jot and what's a tittle? Well, a jot, it's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's our letter Y, but in Hebrew, it's just this little half box kind of thing. It's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Well, what's a tittle? That's only part of a letter. Okay, so does everybody see? I've got this whiteboard here. Does everybody see this whiteboard? So here's my marker. If I just do a line like this, everybody see the line, right? How many different letters can we make that line? Well, if we put a dot right here, we can make it an I. If we put a line across it, we can make either lowercase or uppercase T. We do another line, we can make an L. We could just leave it and make it a lowercase L. You get the point, right? One little stroke of part of a letter could... Okay, how many of you have ever been texting and there was one letter and you accidentally hit send and you're like, oh dear God! <laughs> because one letter or one part of a letter could totally change everything. And again, to reference Brother Kilman's teaching in a class once, and he made a reference to a, a verse in Leviticus, that if you just change the tittle, which would make something, and there's a few different ways, but it could make something either our B or our K, and if you just flip the tittle to reverse the letter, the verse says, thou shalt bless the Lord. But if you flip the tittle, it changes it to say, thou shalt curse the Lord. That's kind of a problem. 
So what is Jesus saying? Let's look at this progression. He says, my words shall not pass away. He says, every word from God. Then he says, every letter. And then he says, every part of a letter. He breaks it down to the smallest grammatical functions of the Hebrew grammar to say, it's not going anywhere. We're not going to lose any of it. So are you apostolic? Did we lose part of the Bible? Because Jesus said, we're not going to. And I know that's not a popular concept to believe in anymore. But I believe in Jesus. <laughs> to Jesus... God's word is forever settled. To Jesus, we have a Bible. So we know that the Old Testament canon was established by Jesus' day, but what about the New Testament? Do we have a Matthew through Revelation New Testament? Well, I would say the same principles apply. If God can keep the Old Testament and protect it, he can do the same for the New Testament. So are there examples of the New Testament passages being called Scripture? Now, wait a second. That's circular reasoning. You can't use the Bible to prove the Bible, or you're using the Bible to prove things about the Bible, to which I would reply, yeah. I use the Bible for everything. That's how my presupposition works. That's my foundation to say, this is the word of God. So anything this says, even if it's referring to another passage, you can trust it because God gave it to you. If your presupposition is different, here's my question. Whose is correct? Because everybody has a bias, sister, cousin Elizabeth. Everybody has a bias. So whose is correct? Because if you're telling me I'm wrong, I can say you're wrong. So let's just go to the Bible and figure it out with all due respect. So let's look at a few passages here. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> I mean, are we doing okay? Yeah. Amen. First, or excuse me, 2 Peter <clears throat> chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Uh, this guy named the Apostle Peter is writing, and he says, even as our beloved brother Paul, anybody remember Paul? Yeah, he wrote a lot of the New Testament. According to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. <clears throat> so this guy, Paul, the apostle, he's written some things to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, or they wrestle with these things, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Now, if you can just keep that up there just for a second. Now, what is Peter saying? Now, the context of this particular chapter is false teaching and false teachers and how some people would take what Paul was writing to these churches and these false teachers are manipulating these things to their own destruction in their false teaching and people are believing them. So you should kind of watch out for false teaching. Now, I don't want to make anybody suspicious, and this is not going on here, but I just want to tell you that just because they have a microphone, you have to be careful because we have a filter, Pastor. Everything that we believe should be filtered through the Word of God. Everything that somebody says, if I get up here and start teaching something that doesn't align with the Word, I would expect and I would very much trust that somebody would come up here and say, I will take your microphone. Because we do not let false teachers uh, in our pulpits. Amen? Amen? So this is what we want to break down from this passage. Peter's audience would have knew who Paul was, and they would have already known some of the epistles. Well, and Peter says all his epistles. That Peter understood that his audience knew what Paul was writing. And that they had already received from Paul, Paul's other or excuse me, Paul's writings, and these Peter says, it's just like other parts of Scripture. It's the Bible. So why does this matter? Because we have one apostle looking at another apostle and saying what he is writing is Scripture. Because some people say, well, they didn't really know what they were writing. They were just writing stuff. 
They, you know, they were just doing, you know, they were just trying to have some good advice. No, they were inspired by the Holy Ghost. They were anointed of God. And people from that same time period understood this is scripture. This is from the Lord. It sets the president to understand that they knew at that time what they had. The Bible was not concocted. It was given by God and received by men. Okay, what about, let's, let's continue with this Paul guy. <clears throat> let's go to 1 Timothy 5. So here is the apostle Paul, who Peter was just talking about. Chapter 5, verse 18, it says this, For scripture saith, now what's he about to do? He's about to specifically quote the Old Testament, and again, he's quoting the book of Deuteronomy. He says, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. <clears throat> then he says, and, meaning scripture saith, and scripture saith, the laborer is worthy of his reward. Now, by the way, on a, on a, a little side note, the context of this passage is tithing. Because the minister, if he's ministering and feeding the body, the workman is worthy of his reward, meaning we should support the ministry. So, uh, pastor did not tell me to bring this up, but you should probably be tithing and supporting the ministry. So... What, what about that little phrase there, and the laborer is worthy of his reward? We only see that in one other part of the Bible. It's in the book of Luke. It's in Luke 10, verse 7, where Jesus said the workman is worthy, or the laborer is worthy of his reward. So you have what scholars say and what it looks like Paul is doing. He's looking at the book of Luke which means Luke was not written way late by some random person, but the book of Luke was written as scripture, and Paul calls it scripture. Again, we're seeing that even the apostles viewed these books that we hold, the precedent is there, the apostles recognized and saw this was given by God, received by the church. So again, we're talking about the issue of canon. We're talking about scripture. It is what? A theological issue. So what you believe about the Bible will dictate how you view it and how it came to be. It was not concocted. It was not compiled. It was received. Now that's the theological issue. Here, let's move into number two. We'll move into number two. This is the history element. So if I was talking to someone that did not believe in God, so I mean, because here's the thing, if you're talking to somebody that does not respect the Bible, you're not going to quote Acts 2.38 to them. Because their presupposition is that I don't even believe in God anyways, why would I believe in Acts 2.38? So you have to build a foundation of respect. I've talked to, and I know a, a number of you uh, have, have commented to me about this as well, talking to people that either are atheists or maybe just only believe in parts of the Bible. When you start showing them the things that we talked about last night, then you start showing the things that we are about to move into here and show them the validity of Scripture. They will look at Scripture and say, oh, so it's not just totally mythology. Also, there is actually validity in this. They will start to respect it, and then you can move into those issues of God's love and grace. So here is the history element. Here are some accusations people try to say. Those lost books, which we already talked about, those lost books, those were removed. People just decided what was in the Bible. The Catholic Church created the Bible, and, and they kicked out some books, and they, they, they had a little cafeteria style. They, ooh, I'll take some of Matthew. Ooh, I'll take oh, oh, some Luke. Oh, I don't like this over here. Okay, there's no historical basis for that. Okay, I'm going to say that again. There is no truth in those claims. In short, no one chose what should be in Scripture. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, we know that just after the book of Revelation was written, in, in probably the 90s, like the year, 
After that, there was a lot of false teachers that were growing up and they were writing these books like the Gospel of Judas and Gospel of Thomas. And the, these are, they're, they're called Gnostics. And, and in short, Gnostics, it was a false teaching. They didn't, and one, one of their beliefs was they did not believe that Jesus had an actual body. That's why the one resurrection story we saw, Jesus' head was in the clouds because his body just looked like a body. It wasn't, so we, we don't have time to really dig in there other than to say that it's false teaching. So a lot of these heretics, false teachers, they were trying to create their own canon. And I've read scholars that say, it looks like they were trying to do this because the real canon was already received. The, the, the church knew what was in the New Testament, and these heretics were trying to make their own scriptures. So let's take a look at some of these early church preachers. So after John had passed away, we see tons and tons of preachers and ministers. They're, they're preaching, they're writing letters and epistles. Well, let's take a look at what they believed about the New Testament. This is what they said. Their view of the New Testament was that God gave it to the church, not a collected group to control people. The New Testament had apostolic authority. What that means is uh, we've got, you know, Matthew was an apostle. Luke is connected to Paul. We know that, that, that Luke was a companion of an apostle. So all of these preachers view the New Testament as having apostolic authority being given by God. Now here's something we want to keep in mind. I've got a list of this on page two of your notes. We're not going to go through all of these word for word, but I want us to keep this in mind. These are snippets. Remember yesterday I said that so much of the ancient world has been lost to us. And so these are things, these are books and sermons and letters that have survived. You would not believe how much of the ancient world as far as documents have been lost. I mean, it's astounding. Some of the greatest Roman historians that we have, we have like a third of what they actually wrote. In some, in some cases, even less than that. So we're looking at these things, these sermons. Now, you, you've heard your pastor and other ministers preach for many years. Now, in, in, in one sermon, I doubt, Pastor Cox, that you have preached from Genesis to Revelation. Just open up, let's start reading. And you're going to quote from every book of the Bible. That's a very long sermon, right? Probably we should not hold these preachers to, to that expectation, that what we are finding are snippets of their sermons. So that's important because maybe, uh, maybe they're, they're probably in their sermons, they're going to quote from two or three books. They're not going to quote from the entire Bible. But when you look at all of these epistles, what were they quoting from in their archive of their sermons? That's what we're trying to look at. Does that make sense? You guys with me? Okay, so let's look at a couple of these. This is page two of your notes. Right around the time that the Apostle John was preaching, we have a book called the Epistle of 1 Clement. Now, from the ancient church historians, they're writing, and we have 1 Clement as a book. He, this, this author may have known several of the apostles. He's living, you can see, it's very close to 96, the year. And it looks like he may have known multiple of the apostles. He quotes in, or uses several New Testament books there, uh, Corinthians, Romans, Hebrews, and maybe even uh, references Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Titus. Now, again, we're not going to go through these necessarily word for word, but I'm just trying to build a little bit of understanding that these books were known to these early church preachers. Ignatius, now he died around 110. He was a bishop, a minister, and it looks like he was a disciple of the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, the Epistles of John, Revelation. He cites, and you can see it there, numerous New Testament books and shows that it looks like he knew about something we call the Pauline Corpus, which was a collection of Paul's writings that were sent from church to church so people could read it and understand it because, you know, they didn't have email and you know, computers just to print things off, which by the way, in that Pauline corpus, Brother Kilman, Hebrews was included. 
Well, how about a friend of Ignatius, this guy named Polycarp? Great name. I don't know. I've always thought this sounded like a fish, Brother Laverne. Polycarp, but he's a, with no due respect to Polycarp. He's a bishop, a minister, and he also was a disciple of John. Now let's pause here for a second. Who's John? You've got Jesus, his disciple John, and then his disciples were Ignatius and Polycarp. So they're very close to Jesus because their teacher was the one that followed Jesus. So these ministers and these preachers knew these apostles, and as they're writing letters and as they're, they're preaching, they're, they're being quoted by even other ministers, and they're using, I mean, look at Polycarp. He, he knew uh, Romans and 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, First and Second Timothy, and also looks like he references 1 Peter, 1 John, and Matthew. And by the way, these early guys, they didn't write, we don't have a lot of what they wrote. So it's not like we have like this massive library. We have a few things that they wrote, but they're already making these references. Let's keep going here. A little bit later, there's another minister named Papias. Again, he's living at the same time. It looks like he knew Polycarp and he had heard John preach. Another historian wrote that it looks like Papias knew, okay, you guys remember in, in the book of Acts, there's this guy named Philip the Evangelist, and he, he's used in, the, in the, um, the revival in Samaria, and then God says, hey, leave the revival, go out to minister to this one guy in the desert, and then a little bit later, we find out he has daughters who are prophetesses. It looks like Papias knew some of those daughters. So again, these people are connected to very biblical characters, and he is speaking, and, and now there is some controversy around some of these facts, but if you line all these things together, it looks like he knew of multiple New Testament books, including Matthew, Mark, John, 1 John, Revelation, 1 Peter, and probably the Corinthian epistles. This next one is a heavyweight. This guy's a, a very important minister. You got, there's a couple ways you could say his name, Irenaeus or Irenaeus. He is a disciple of Polycarp. So again, look at that progression. Jesus, John, Polycarp, Irenaeus. There's an unbroken line of, of these preachers. And Irenaeus, we have a lot of what he wrote and preached because he was a very prolific writer. And he has over 1,000 New Testament passages that he references or he quotes. And you can see the, the things there that he, that he references. And you'll notice the years, it's just a steady progression. Well, if we go down, there's uh, what is called the, the Muratorian Fragment. Now, what is a fragment? A fragment is just, it's, it's a part of a page or a manuscript. It's just a little document. And, and this is a very early list that contains 22 of the 27 New Testament books saying that we know God gave us these books. Now, we want to pause here and just acknowledge that some people try to say, okay, yeah, it says 20, 22 out of 27. There are some that are missing. Well, you have to be careful with that kind of thinking because what it does not show is how much was this fragment believed in the sense of, did everybody think that only 22 books were received? Or was it a local area? Or was it a big dispute? Because some people try to say, yeah, but Revelation or Hebrews, people disputed that. Okay, but if only like two people disputed it, that's not much of a disputation. And so just to say that some of these things lacked agreement, okay, what, what you have to remember is that Revelation is the last book of the Bible written. Some of these books were written very late, in the, in the years of the apostles' lives. So what does that mean? Okay, remember, you don't have email, texting, or, or even the telegraph, right? You don't have these things. So if John is writing, and he writes the book of Revelation, he sends it to these churches, the, the churches from hundreds of miles away are not gonna get Revelation the next week. So even when people try to say, people disputed Revelation, maybe that's because they didn't get it yet. 
Because you have to let there be time for people to, for the churches to read these books and say, oh my word, we got to make sure that Ephesus or, or all the way over in Rome, that, that's a long distance. So these books have to travel from place to place. And then of course, p- the scribes are making copies and, and they're being dispersed, but it takes time for, for, for things in this age in that era to be dispersed. So just because people try to say these, and by the way, uh, Revelation's a little bit longer, but some of these other books like 2 Peter, that's a fairly short epistle. That's That's a later epistle. So these things, just because somebody disagreed, it does not show us that everybody disagreed with it. It very well could have been a minority in only a certain place. It doesn't tell us the location. So we'll move on there. So this is interesting. Uh, Michael Kruger points this out as well. There's a, a preacher that lived around 200. His name was Origen. Now, Origen has a lot of, and by the way, I'm almost done. Uh, Origen does have some views that are a little strange. <laughs> a, a lot of views that are very strange. Some things he got right and other things were like my word. Like, so anyways. But he has this sermon that's very interesting. He has what we call an allegorical sermon, where in this sermon, everything is kind of symbolic of something. But he preaches this sermon in the, around the year 200, and in this sermon, he lists all 27 books of the New Testament. By the way, he attributes Hebrews to Paul again. Uh, but he lists all 27 of these books as Scripture. And now if you couple that with that Miratorian fragment, which was written around the same time, you can say, okay, maybe some people didn't have all 27 books yet, but Origen did. And some of these other preachers did. And so it just, again, it's showing us that people acknowledged these books. They did not compile them. They did not concoct them. But they understood God has given us this. We know these books are scripture. We don't have to have a council to cherry pick what we want. Okay, so let's, let's kind of move on. I've got just a few shorter things here to kind of wrap this lesson up. Okay, so the history side says that these early church preachers, they recognized the New Testament, the Old Testament, What about the lost books? What about these things, again, to make reference to what we did at the beginning? Okay, here's the deal. Scholars can look at these these gospels. And just a really side note, these early church preachers, they never put Matthew, Mark, and Luke on the same plane as the gospel of Thomas and Judas and these other gospels. The four gospels are the ones that are referenced. The four gospels are the ones that are seen as actually being gospels. Okay, we can move on. So scholars look at these, and it's really interesting. Through the handwriting, through the ink, through the document type, scholars can look at these manuscripts and these ancient documents, Sister Crane, and see very close to the year that these uh, lost books were written. It's really fascinating. Uh, for example, I mean, like, uh, I ask some, some churches, uh, how many people still write in cursive? And some people do. But I would, I would kind of view it as being more common for the older generation to write in cursive than the younger. Well, it's not a, an exact parallel, but scholars can look and say, okay, this style of writing, they can pinpoint it to close to within 50 years of the, when it was written because of the style of the writing. So all of that to say this, these lost books were written after the New Testament. All of them. They are written after, the, after John had passed away. We can pinpoint this. So what does that mean? None of these books have apostolic connection. None of them do. But wait a second. Isn't it called the Gospel of Thomas? Isn't it called the Gospel of Judas? What, their names, okay. Here's the thing, okay. If I was writing the Gospel of Andrew... And I had the Gospel of Andrew from Indianapolis, and you got on Amazon, one-star review. Terrible, nobody likes this book, not any good at all. But if I was like, hmm, the Apostle Andrew. Andrew the Apostle, the Gospel, five stars, right? Instantly, so spiritual. Oh, I love the insight, right? Why? Because what ancient people realized is that if they write under the name of a famous person, more people are likely to read it. 
Now, some of this was done in a deceitful way, and other people did it in the love or the honor of this individual. I don't want to get, I mean, people are complex. Some people did it deceitfully, and some people did it as to honor the individual. But regardless, not every name attached to these lost books, or well, any of them, Brother Kilman, were written by the individuals holding the name of that book. Here's another thing. <clears throat> These are called pseudo-books or pseudepigrapha, pseudo-writings, fake writings, and uh, false writings. Here's the thing. Early church preachers never accepted a book like knowing that it was not written by an apostle. And we actually have evidence of this. And, uh, well, uh, we'll, we'll share this right away. There, there was, a, and I love this name too, another minister named Serapion. He's living around the same time as Irenaeus. And he, he saw this gospel of Peter. He saw this gospel of Peter that we reference where Jesus comes out of the tomb and all that. The cross comes out too. And he writes letters to different churches forbidding them to use and read that book. Because he says this was not actually written by Peter. Don't use it. Because at first it, it looks like he, he was a little unsure, but he started to read and study it and do some research and he figured out this is not an actual gospel. This is not actually attached to the apostles and he, and he commanded other churches to get rid of it. There's another elder of uh, what, what then they called Asia, now we call Turkey. And it says, for the love of Paul, he wrote this book called uh, the, the, the uh, well, Third Corinthians actually, the writings of Paul, the Acts of Paul. And these church elders got together and they removed his church position. They kicked him out of his church because you can't lie and write a book and claim it was written by Paul. So what are we trying to say? If they did their research, these early church preachers, okay, and if you look at ancient historians, I've heard people try to say, but in the ancient world, they would not have known if something was false or not. No, they would have because they do their research. You can read, and I've read them, these ancient historians that make fun of other historians because they're terrible historians. They, they look at them and they say, this guy does not know anything about history. You should read me or this other guy. Okay, so these ancient peoples, they did their research. Yes, they would have noticed. Okay, they would have noticed if something was false. Two more short things. This is the big one that I hear people try to uh, argue for. What about the book of Enoch? Okay, now here's what you have to understand. It's not actually the book of Enoch. There, it should be first Enoch. There's five parts of this book. Well, doesn't Jude 1 quote the first, or Enoch, first Enoch? Well, let's, let's break this down. Just because something is quoted, does it mean that it's scripture? Okay, in Acts 17... Paul quotes Greek pagan philosophers. Does that mean, because he's preaching to these Athenian philosophers and he's saying, even your own philosophers say this, does that mean that Paul was saying these ancient Greeks were saved and they were writing scripture? No, he's making a point based on the familiarity that these, these current Athenians would have known. Even in Titus chapter 1, Paul quotes a philosopher or, or a, a, a scholar from Crete. He's not saying that this guy was writing scripture. He's just using a saying that everybody would have known. Well, let's dig a little bit further into 1st Enoch. Again, if you study the layout of the text and how it was written, this whole book, all five parts of this book were written over the span of 300 years. From 250 years before Jesus, 250 years before Jesus, all the way into the New Testament period. Okay, it, this, uh, and I've read uh, various scholars that are kind of experts on this. They say that first Enoch, it's obviously compiled and it was written by numerous people, not just by one. Another guy, another uh, uh, Hebrew Old Testament scholar, he said this, there is no text trail or document trail which links this book all the way back to Genesis because who is Enoch? Remember, he was a descendant of Adam. He walked with the Lord, and the Lord took him to heaven. 
So is that Enoch the same Enoch that wrote first Enoch? No, there's no evidence for that at all. Again, somebody probably took his name and said, this is Enoch. Now, this is interesting. I find all of this stuff interesting. There's only one. Now, there's a lot of Jewish communities in the ancient world. There's only one that accepted Enoch, first Enoch, as being scriptural. Only one. Now, scholars look at these things, and they say, if something is quoted, it has to be like exact. Now, we don't have time to break that down exactly, but Brother Kilman, you know, scholars look at these manuscripts and they try to say, well, there's one word deviation, so it cannot be a quotation. Well, here's the thing. If you've read First Enoch and then you read Jude, it's not a complete quote. Because what happens is in that book of First Enoch, uh, I'm just going to paraphrase it. I've been going way too long. I apologize. But this is what it says, that Jesus is going to come and he's going to destroy the ungodly. Now what Jude does, it's similar, but he doesn't, Jude does not say that Jesus will come to destroy the ungodly. He says that Jesus will come to convince the ungodly. Those are two totally different things. If you would rather be convinced of something or destroyed of something, I can probably guarantee which one you're going to choose. So this is probably, in my view, this is probably what is going on. Because, now, because doesn't, doesn't Jude say the, that the prophet Enoch said this? So doesn't that confirm that he's quoting Enoch? Again, first Enoch was not written by Enoch from Genesis. So probably what is going on is that you have this source up here, and then you have First Enoch and Jude quoting that parent source. Well, isn't that a problem? Well, not really. We have a lot of what the a prophet Elijah preached, but we don't have everything he preached. We have a lot of what Jeremiah wrote down that God said this is going to be scripture, but I'm sure that Jeremiah preached other things that God felt we, that didn't need to be in scripture. There are things probably, well, you get the point. There's a lot of things here that we could reference, but let's, well, let's move on. Okay, what about, this is the last thing, what about the Council of Nicaea, this Catholic Church Council the year was uh, 325. That's when the Catholic Church decided what was going to be in the Bible or not. Okay, you do the history research. Okay, what was this council about? It's a word we call Christology. It means how do you talk about Jesus, the person and the work of Jesus, who was Jesus. That council was what are we going to, how are we going to talk about Jesus? That's what it was mainly about. If you read the documents, there's nothing about the canon. Nothing. And that's really all I have to say about it because there's nothing in the, in the historical documents that talk about it. So let's end it with this. Attacking God's word. Because remember, we're talking about the canon today. We're talking about scripture today. Genesis 3.1 says this. The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said. Attacks against the word of God are as old as the beginning of time. As old. Okay, it's, isn't this, isn't this the first time that we read of Satan talking to humans? And what is he doing? Casting doubt on scripture. Asking, isn't God a liar? Can you trust his word? And again, we've hit this, so I'm not going to belabor this point. But if you can't trust God's word, what can you trust about him? And I, I was recently talking to a pastor, and he said this. In the past five to seven years, I've had a lot of conversations with people about First Enoch and the canon, what's in the Bible. And he said, I can't think of one time where they were not trying to dispute or question the word in order to say, well, we just can't trust anything in the Bible in order to justify their lifestyle. Because the evidence is on, I would say, our side or the side of the word on God's side. 
So if we just try to say, and now if we have a willing heart that is, is wondering about these things, that's something totally different, right? That's, that's hunger for truth. But what the issue is, is that if we have it in our heads that, well, Enoch should be in the Bible and that cast out, well, Matthew shouldn't be or this book should be. So what are you trying to do here? What's your motive? And if we can trust the Bible, Brother Kermis, we can trust God, we can trust all of the Bible, we can trust Scripture, we can trust our own salvation. Amen, Pastor. Thank you for listening to our podcast this week. We hope you enjoyed this message. Remember, if you would like to find out more information about our church or to contact us, please go online at connectpointupc.com. And also don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app so you will be automatically notified of new episodes. Thank you and we hope you have a great week. Thank you.